Good evening, citizens of the Empire. Thank you for attending this lecture. I am Klaus Skolemann, History's Fellow and Scholar Eminent of the Library of Altdorf. This evening we will be covering the history of Marienburg. Now, before any torches are lit nor pitchforks obtained, not that I would expect a reaction thus among such an esteemed group as yourselves, I must insist that we contain ourselves in the interests of knowledge. While it may be true that the wayward state of Westerland, now known by the fictitious title of the Wasteland, has run afoul of our own glorious empire, we must be objective with our retelling of the histories, and I shall be leading by example during this lecture. Tis a mystery lost in the annals of time, the true origins of Marienburg. Wars, fires, floods, vermin, and even the nefarious cult of Manan have conspired to obscure the truth. What remains be naught but fanciful tales spun in taverns and educated suppositions made by learned scholars of the old world poring o'er parchment and manuscript. The Marienburgers are a practical folk, and care not for the city's history so long as it provides a prosperous existence. However, we must begin somewhere, and so we shall, with, with Marius the Fenwolf minus twenty to minus ten, I see. Amidst the fanciful tales, there exist some truths about the city's storied past. According to ancient sagas recorded many moons hence, in the days betwixt the dwarves' departure and the arrival of man, the fens surrounding the islands of future Marienburg were overrun by beasts known as the Fimnir. At the same time, in the northern forests of the Old World, the Jutan tribe found themselves on the brink of extinction, facing certain doom at the hands of the Teutogens, a warlike and dominant tribe. Faced with a bleak fate of enslavement, famine, or death in battle, their paramount chief, the semi-legendary Marius, led his people in a great exodus, away from the Forest of Shadows and towards the west with all they could carry. Anyway, however they arrived, and for what reason they left, it is acknowledged that the Jutonis found themselves in the wasteland by the year minus twenty I.C. There, as the sagas recount, they engaged in a brutal war with the femur, each determined to eradicate the other. The conflict reached its climax around minus ten I.C., when the Jutones and Femir clashed in a decisive battle amongst the ruins of a sea-elf fortress. The saga of Dobbyarend, the oldest known with fragments dating back to the 6th century, states that Marius challenged the Femir queen to single combat and emerged victorious, slaying her upon Slagvelthrots, Battlefield Rock, the former name of the island upon which the Stadholder's palace now stands. Marius claimed the marsh and all lands between the forests and the seas, founding his city upon the ruins of the ancient elven city, and declaring himself king of Utonsric, realm of the Utones, and so he named the city after himself, and raised his tower upon Rixeland, realm's isle, now known as Riker's Isle. The ensuing centuries are shrouded in mystery. A column within the crypts of the Cathedral of Manan bears inscriptions of names and accomplishments, some of which remain legible. Though they were titled kings, they were little more than chiefs in those days, governing a rustic fishing village amongst the ruins. Mention is made of Eurytius Mariozun and the comet with twin tails that marked his rule. Then, in the third century I.C., Gisbert Manilikide of the Dozen Sons and his successor, referred to only as Grootnaeus, Big Nose. The raiders of the far north, 
501 to 632 IC. Throughout this time, two key factors greatly impacted Marienburg's history. Firstly, the people's love of the sea grew and their contacts, both violent and commercial, with the Norse intensified. Secondly, the city's thriving salt trade, which was controlled by the king of Jutonsrik and later the barons of Westerland, became the target of Norskan greed. The Manan Sport Sea proved to be Marienburg's gold mine, providing a constant supply of fish, which was salted and exported to the growing cities of the interior. The salt trade was so profitable that it became the focus of the earliest imperial laws against smuggling. Despite this, the wealth of Marienburg continued to draw the greedy eyes of the Norskans. In the year 632 IC, the first signs of terror struck the shores of the Old World as the Norskan raiders arrived with their dragon-headed longboats. An ancient diary housed in the library of the Temple of Verena speaks of the fear that these raids instilled in the hearts of the people. Merciful Shalya, the anonymous writer pleaded, spare us the fury of the Norskans. Yet mercy was not to be found. As the same year saw the first raising and burning of Marienburg, this event was repeated three more times over the next twelve hundred years. Despite the terror, the people of Marienburg did not give up easily. From studying the captured longboats of the Norskans, they learned how to build their own seafaring vessels and attempted to fight the attackers on their own grounds. Some efforts were successful, while others were not. When they failed, the barons would negotiate a large tribute, usually in gold, in exchange for peace, at least until the Norskans sought more wealth. When successful, treaties were signed that allowed for trade instead of tribute, as the people of Marienburg sought to bind the Norskans with luxury imports that could be obtained more easily through trade, rather than risking lives in war. And now we move to the rise of the merchants, 632 to 2150 IC. The sea had a powerful effect on the denizens of Marienburg, causing them to be bound to it ever more closely. With newfound assurance, they set about exploring the shores of the old world, establishing connections and engaging in commerce with the cities and towns of Bretonia, Estalia, and Tilea. They even traversed the Sea of Claws to forge commercial treaties with the residents of Albion and journeyed far to the south to bring back silks and spices from the exotic lands of Araby and Ayindi. In the beginning, trade was managed by the noble families of the wasteland, who, as was their custom, remained close to their people and did not hesitate to work alongside their villains. However, with the rise of imperial fashion came a shift in imperial attitudes among the nobles of the wasteland, who began to disdain commerce and leave it to the common folk. This was a grave misstep. The merchants, taking advantage of the opportunity, pursued trade with such zeal that successful trading houses soon equaled the nobles in wealth, and even became creditors to those who had fallen upon hard times. By the time of the three emperors, the influence of the middle class and its enterprising members had grown to such an extent that they could demand and secure seats on the barons' advisory council. The Stadsrad, which had previously been the exclusive domain of the clergy and the nobility. At first, Baron Rolandius van Buick refused this outright, declaring, To admit commoners to governance is tantamount to handing over the keys to the old world to chaos itself. 
The Arrival of the High Elves, 2150-2301 IC. Verily, Baron Rolandius van Buick was swayed by the revelations of the Merchants Association, which disclosed the existence of sundry debts, including that against his own abode, which would have to be seized if not promptly settled. The Baron, not wishing to reside once more in his chilly fortress on Riker's Isle, or to find himself in the company of his impecunious noble peers, agreed to renegotiate the loans. However, the most pivotal moment in Marienburg's history occurred in the year 2150 IC, when a mysterious vessel was spied approaching the Manansport Z. Though not outwardly hostile, its unfamiliar appearance prompted Baron Matthias van Hoogmans to dispatch four of his own ships to make contact and ascertain the newcomer's motives. Within a day, the caution of the Baron was replaced by delight, as the ship entered Marienburg Harbour, escorted by the four carracks and saluted with a firing of their cannons. The sea elves had returned to their ancestral port. Sensing the opportunity of a lifetime, Baron van Hoogmans hastily entered negotiations with the sea elf wavemaster, Sulandil Fartrader, a delegation comprising the Baron himself, the High Priest of Heindrich, and the heads of the preeminent merchant houses worked tirelessly for two weeks alongside the captain and officers of the Lugsol, resulting in the Treaty of Amity and Commerce. With this triumph, Marienburg firmly established itself as the premier port in the Old World. The Sack of Marienburg, 2344 I.C. In the year of our Lord Sigmar, 2344 I.C., there was a great battle of Marienburg, fought between vengeful high elves and the merchant city of Marienburg. Otto Steinroth, known as the Red Pirate of Marienburg, had led a fleet through the mists of Ulthuan, guided by fortune more than prudence. His ships, adorned with wolf prows, sacked the city of Sardanath and plundered its riches before departing with a great wealth. These actions, however, did not go unnoticed for the Sea Lord Aislin was incensed by Steinroth's pillaging. Aislin, who had come to the aid of Sardanath too late, chose to make an example of the Red Pirate, and shadowed his fleet back to Marienburg. As the battle commenced, the coastal fortresses of Marienburg were shrouded in an inexplicable mist, through which the High Elf fleet bombarded the port. Aislin's flagship, the Brine Dragon, disembarked its warriors onto the docks, and the battle began. Despite the bravery of Marienburg's defenders, they were no match for the elves, who eventually retrieved valuable treasures and retreated to the Brine Dragon, taking with them some elven merchants. Aislin then ordered his mages to unleash a conflagration upon the docks, reducing Marienburg's merchant fleet and much of the city's wealth to ashes. Upon returning to Ulthuan, Aislin was met with both praise and condemnation for his actions, which some saw as overly ruthless and a declaration of war. The sea lord standing at court soon diminished, but he was not without support, as the phoenix king Finubar saw a necessary ruthlessness in Aislin that Ulthuan required. And now we reach the infamous imperial crisis, 2301 to 2378 IC. Twas in the year 2301 of the imperial calendar that Marienburg was seized by crisis as the world was beset by the incursion of chaos. The last Baron of Westerland, Paulus van der Macht, had fallen without heir in service to Magnus the Pious in Kislev, 
leaving his province and its wealth to be claimed by the many. Noble houses across the empire sent forth their petitions, and lawyers laboured tirelessly to prove connections to the house of van der Macht. Meanwhile reports reached the imperial palace of electoral provinces, quietly mustering their armies. The emperor, wise and just, saw the danger in choosing one house over another, for it might ignite the embers of civil war and threaten the peace he had so recently established. And so it was, on a late spring's night, that a committee of Marienburg's wealthiest merchants came forth with a proposal. Their plan was bold and simple, to govern the province through a directorate comprised of its greatest merchant houses and temples, the taxes might be collected, trade flourish, and the empire's peace and unity be preserved. Magnus, it is said, prayed deeply for many days and nights, and in the end he agreed to their proposal, ending the barony and renaming the province Westerland. Under the direction of the merchants, the province flourished, and the ties to the empire weakened, as the power of the directorate grew, and thus subsequent emperors came to take Marienburg for granted, forgetful of its former status. Whether by design or chance the plutocrats of Marienburg had secured their place as masters of their own destiny, and to current events. The Directorate of Marienburg 2378 IC to present. In the year 2378, the rights of the merchant houses to arm and maintain private militias, with the purpose of countering the scourge of the pirate gangs of Reavers Point, were granted. Following successful campaigns, this privilege was made permanent, and the imperial garrison was recalled. The merchant houses, capitalizing upon this triumph, offered to assume control of the imperial second fleet, stationed in Marienburg, for nigh on a millennia. The Emperor Leopold von Ulhafiger, beset by financial woes, was eager to accede, thus freeing the necessary funds for his military endeavours in the East and for the suppression of domestic uprisings. The Emperor, content to leave the defence of Westerland to its prosperous burghers, disbanded the Second Fleet, and its ships and sailors soon found their way into the private forces of the merchant houses. In the year 2399 IC, the directors established their own excise service, tasked with the efficient collection of taxes and tariffs and the suppression of smuggling. Every coin was meticulously counted and recorded prior to reaching the imperial legation, and the excisemen of Marienburg proved themselves effective at apprehending smugglers. Some whispered that the blameless were unjustly accused when real smugglers could not be found to present a favourable appearance. The Imperial Excise Service in Marienburg was permitted to dwindle until it performed naught but received payments from the Directorate. The final severance from the Empire came during the rule of Emperor Dieter IV, the last of the Unfahigas, who imposed heavy taxes on beer and sausages to finance his invasion of the border princedoms. The resultant chaos from the revolts against the taxes and Dieter's downfall in favour of Grand Prince Wilhelm of the Reichland prompted the Directorate to seize the opportunity and have the Stadtsrat declare the independence of Westerland. The newly crowned Emperor Wilhelm III did not accept this news with equanimity. He dispatched three expeditions against Marienburg, all of which met with defeat and the last resulted in the surrender of the Imperial Army at the Battle of the Grocher Marsh. 
This also uncovered the connections between the Directorate and the Sea Elves, whose wizards played a crucial role in the final campaign. Faced with threats from all sides, Wilhelm was compelled to recognize the independence of what was now calling itself the Wasteland. With the Treaty of Twenty Caldezite, 2429, Marienburg was free to navigate its own path in the world. Well, citizens of the Empire, this brings us to the current day where we find ourselves. I hope you have enjoyed this lecture and that you may walk with Sigmar. If you wish for more lectures like this, please let me know down below and make any necessary arrangements to be informed of upcoming lectures. May you walk in Sigmar's steps by his grace. Goodbye for now.